Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Our guest this week is Andy Borowitz. Andy's a writer and a creator of the Borowitz Report and author of the new book, Profiles in Ignorance, How America's Politicians Got Dumb and Dumber, which is now available. I think that the President of the United States should be smarter than I am. Green, who helped lead the right-wing charge to overturn the 2020 election results, learned that people back in her home state have been paying close attention to her ridiculous antics. There's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me, we can't get fooled again. What newspapers and magazines did you regularly read before you were tapped for this to stay informed and to understand I've read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. Like what specifically, I'm curious, that you... Um, so supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and I think you said that has him checked, we're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body. I'm Andy Borowitz, and I believe that America's politicians shouldn't be total morons. Sorry, not sorry. Andy, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. You've done many things in your life, from writing for television hits in the 80s, creating the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, creating the Borowitz Report. Tell us a little bit about, beyond what we already know, who you are and what you do. Okay. Well, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, Shaker Heights, actually. And I was the youngest kid in my family, so I was never taken seriously. I was always treated something as a joke. And Francis Ford Coppola had this old line, which was that he said, when you're writing a screenplay and you have a problem, try to turn a disadvantage into an advantage. And I think that was my approach to life. I wasn't being taken seriously. And so I became a clown. I tried to make it intentional that people were laughing at me. So that was really, I think, what started my career as a comedian in all these different media. And um, I really came from a family that had no showbiz whatsoever. I was a pioneer in my family or a pariah, I guess you might call me. I was very much the black sheep of the family who did not go into corporate law as I was supposed to. And yeah, I think that was a win. I have an older brother and he was the firstborn. So he became a corporate lawyer and really took the bullet for me. I feel like my parents Got the lawyer. They got a lawyer. Now I can be a comedian. 
And your new book is called Profiles in Ignorance. It feels this way, but what do you think? Do you think it's true that our politicians are getting dumber? Yeah, the subtitle of the book is How America's Politicians Got Dumb and Dumber. And this was my pandemic project in a way. I don't know how you kept busy during the pandemic. You have a podcast. I wrote as well. I wrote a book as well. You wrote a book too. So we all have these projects. I did some Wordle. I still have that addiction going. Unfortunately, I was not able to shake Wordle. I still got it. So I had been thinking that our politicians had gotten more ignorant, especially with the election of Donald Trump in 2016. If you do kind of a straight forensic inventory of how much these people know, rather than just name calling, I don't want to call people idiots or morons, whatever. I want to do a forensic inventory and ask, How much do these people know? So I went back in time and tried to find out when this trend of politicians knowing less and less began. And I landed on Ronald Reagan running for governor of California in 1966. That's where the book begins. And it takes us through Dan Quayle, George W. Bush, Sarah Palin, Donald Trump. And it's really depressing, but funny trip, I hope, through this lowering of the bar, which is not, I swear, Alyssa, it's not my imagination. No, it doesn't feel like it. And I'm really looking forward to the post-Trump, the sequel of the book, the issue or volume two of your book, because I think there are many more you can you could write about comedically. Well, yeah. I mean, I tease that a little bit because in the final chapter of the book, I talk about some of the people who are aspiring to be the next Trump. And Interestingly enough, there are people like Josh Hawley and Ron DeSantis who are extremely well-educated men. This is what's truly shocking, and I think actually really reprehensible, which is somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene is genuinely stupid. She really does not know anything. Anyone who believes that I could operate a space laser, for example, I think has some problems. But it's somebody like Josh Hawley or Ron DeSantis These guys are smart, pretending to be dumb. And I think that's, in a way, morally much more reprehensible. That's going on now. Princeton grad, Ted Cruz, William and Mary grad, Matt Gaetz. I really hate to defame all these universities, but I broke down our descent into ignorance in the book into three phases, which I can just summarize really quickly. The three phases are ridicule, acceptance, and celebration. And we're in the celebration phase. The ridicule was guys like Reagan, who were dumb but pretended to be smart. And acceptance were people like George W. Bush, who was dumb and embraced being dumb. It made him like a regular guy who you wanted to have a beer with. And now we're in the celebration phase where smart people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Ron DeSantis have to pretend to be dumb. So we're now really in the Lewis Carroll upside down land. Do you think that's just because they perceive it as being more accessible to their base or their audience? Because I want to talk to you about really just the hijacking of words. And there are so many with this Republican Party. But this idea of what it means to be elite. On the other hand, there is an entire block of people now who want to use racism and left wing ideology to deliberately consciously split us. Uh, Many of these are in the elite media. Uh, They're doing it quite deliberately. And we have to have the guts to take them head on. Because this used to be a thing that people actually 
would strive to be elite. Like, my son is an elite youth baseball player. Why is it now a target for right-wing politicians? I get called elite all the time. In the beginning, I was like, oh, thank you. But now I realize they mean it as an insult. Oh, I know. I embrace my elitism. I think we should all be proud. I consider myself the Ted Nugent of elitism. I am just like at the leading edge of this. It's funny you bring up like elite skaters or elite athletes. That's cool. You're okay to be elite or an elite quarterback. You're encouraged to be elite in sports. But to give you a sense that we're not, this isn't entirely new. There's a book called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life by a historian named Richard Hostetter. And he says that this all began with the Puritans. Now, hear me out. That's going back a few years. But the Puritans were kind of elitist. Like they read the Bible. They were very learned. They were very scholarly. And what happened was in the early 18th century, all these evangelical revivalists came to America from places like Holland. And they kind of upstaged the Puritans. The Puritans were considered too stuffy and too elitist and too intellectual. So this battle between really smart people who are learned and experts like Dr. Fauci, people like that, and then the blowhards who are saying these intellectuals, these experts are all trying to sell you a bill of goods, the Abbots and the DeSantis's and these people. This has been a struggle in America now for like 300 years. It's just so absurd. I just don't understand how they recreated some sort of false logic or narrative that like listening to the expert in their field about, say, things like vaccines would be a bad idea. And then listening to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or any politician who is not an expert who is not the elite scientist in their field on vaccines and infectious diseases. How is that the better idea? Like, it's so absurd. It's really absurd because when I was a little boy in the 60s and 70s, in a way, science was like religion. Like, we were so in love with the space program, and every kid was in a rocketry club, and we were so into Carl Sagan and all that stuff, and even stuff, silly stuff like the Jetsons. We all wanted to have like robots and flying cars. And it was like this real sort of secular religion based around believing in scientists. I grew up believing that scientists could figure out anything. And I remember one thing I would go around saying was I would say, I'm really looking forward to tomorrow. And my friends would say, why? What's going on tomorrow? And I said, no, I mean the world of tomorrow. (laughs) And then like flying cars and robots and the world of the Jetsons. And now we're in a kind of, a retrograde dark ages period. And the only thing I can say that's encouraging, well, I have a number of things to say that are encouraging because I ultimately this book and my message is a hopeful message, which is that history doesn't move in a straight line. We had Greece and Rome, the classical era, great poetry, great drama, great architecture. And then we had the dark ages. We fell backwards and it was like, that seems like that's going to suck for a long time. And it did. 
But then we had the Renaissance. Everyone's running around singing madrigals and painting frescoes. So I don't think we should wait as long as it took for the Renaissance to roll around. I think we might want to hasten that arrival of something better. But I do want to encourage people, like, it's so depressing if you read the news and you read about the shredding of women's rights in this country and the shredding of voting rights and the rights of people of color and police brutality. It's extremely depressing. But we can't give into the chorus of despair because history doesn't move in a straight line and we can help move it in the right direction. It's funny that you mentioned space, right? Because I was that kid, too, that would look up to the sky at night and see the stars. And just I think awe is a very important part of being almost like a good person because you're able to see things that are bigger than yourself. But even now, even like things like we're getting these incredible photographs from space. I feel like even now, instead of looking at space with awe, we relate it to Elon Musk and being elitist. So we can't even we can't even really appreciate these photos because now the billionaires, the elitists, have now monopolized even that sense of awe and wonder and mystery. Well, Elon Musk, this is just a scientific fact. He ruins everything. It is scientifically proven. Final question, and this is, this is really the toupee elephant in the room. Are you planning to let Donald Trump back on? Well, uh, I think there's, there's a general question of should Twitter have permanent bans? Um, and, you know, I've, I've talked with Jack Dorsey about this, and uh, he and I are of the same mind, which is that uh, permanent bans should be uh, extremely rare and really reserved for uh, people where they're trying to, uh, for, for accounts that are uh, bots or uh, spam scam accounts. I'm so sorry that he left Twitter because I wish that he had stuck to, you know, please don't ruin outer space. We love outer space. Just ruin Twitter, which is already a toxic cesspool. It's already, you can't really technically ruin Twitter. But no, I mean, one thing, I was really lucky a year ago at the New Yorker Festival, I got to interview one of my idols from my childhood, and I'm sure from yours too, Dr. Jane Goodall. And one thing that's amazing, she's still doing it. She wrote a book called The Book of Hope. I hate to promote someone else's book, but in her case, I will do it. But she wrote this book called The Book of Hope, which was, you know, again, trying to give people some pathway towards hope. It's a really good book. But one thing she talks about, because she's a great scientist, science is all about not just trying to find out things. It's all about the things we don't know. I mean, that's where awe comes into it. You have to have intellectual humility. You know, I felt so sorry for my good friend, Tony Fauci, because I'm being sarcastic. I don't really know him. But Tony, when he was doing those congressional hearings, they would try to like throw all these gotcha questions by saying like, you said this about the coronavirus, and then it turned out not to be true. By the way, that's also, that process is how we got the light bulb. That's how we got every invention. Like being wrong multiple times, it's called experimentation and the scientific process of inquiry. And one thing that was so cool about Jane Goodall was that you read her books and they're very readable and they talk all about her time in Africa with the chimps. And what's so interesting is she sort of makes guesses. She makes surmises about why the apes are doing what they're doing, but she never comes out and says, and so as a scientist, I'm here to tell you in a very condescending way what this means. 
she retains that sense of childhood wonder. And I do think getting back to the whole issue of the Republicans and the right wing weaponizing of words like elitism and stuff. I think the more we get just siloed off into these tribes, that reduces our curiosity because we think we've got a playbook that explains everything. Like it would be so much better if we could maybe for a moment talk to each other across the divide and say, okay, what do you think? Let's share some ideas. Are you willing to listen to me? I'm willing to listen to you. I know that sounds weird coming from me since I'm such a lib on the internet, but actually I would be really interested in having those conversations if people would stop shouting. We do that quite a bit and it gets really like we did one where it was just like a Zoom webinar and we took people from the crowd and allowed them to have discussions back and forth. We do it quite a bit on Twitter with the audio feature, too. And it always gets really emotional because there's a, I think, a need to be seen And I think that's the problem that the Democrats got into, is that they were successful in painting that as elitist, because it was too easy for us to ignore the real pain and struggle that people were feeling in this country. And so we've had conversations where women who are registered Republican or voted for Trump who will break down and cry and say, like, I don't know. I don't know what the right thing to do is. I don't know. All I know is I'm struggling. I can't make ends meet. And we had eight years of Democrats in office, and that didn't help us. The Republican Party felt like they were talking directly to me. In a way, yeah, politics is personal. Politics is emotional. And I feel like, yeah, let's sit in the discomfort of having a conversation with someone that you think doesn't agree with you. Because I don't think we're that different. Although my producer, Ben, and I talk about this all the time, which is like, I just want our politicians to be smart. The bare minimum qualification for someone I want to vote for is that I just want to know, or maybe even not know, but think, I want to make the hypothesis that they are smarter than me. A couple years ago, during the Trump years, I did this nationwide stand-up tour called Make America Not Embarrassing Again. And this was a theme. I was getting into this theme of ignorance. And I realized like this pivot point in our recent history was Sarah Palin, because Sarah Palin, I see as the gateway ignoramus who led to Donald Trump, because she just lowered the bar so far and knew so little and actually came so close to being vice president. We've got to start reading in the spending. We have got to. Um, I've been hearing about his seven speeches since I was in like second grade. When you have a 72 year old running mate, is that a kind of a risky thing to say? She was the nominee, which is about as close as you can get without actually getting it. And I was talking about this issue of ignorance and elitism and what an elitist is. As I said, I own my elitism. But when I say I'm elitist, all I mean is that I want the president of the United States to be smarter than I am. I'm totally on the same page as you. It's a very reasonable thing to ask, but it goes against the grain of what we've got now, where we have politicians really trying to stoop to the level, if not at the level of some voters and even beneath the level and say things, you know, take this horse medicine for your coronavirus. What if we could put bleach inside the body? This is just, If you tried to make this up 20 years ago, no one would have believed it, I don't think. 
So we are in this very weird phase where we've got these two kind of warring parties. And I don't mean Democrats. I mean the party of ignorance and the party of knowledge, this divide. And we've got to get back to thinking that actually some expertise is really helpful. Like, I don't know if you've ever had an operation or hospital stay. I did about, I guess it was about 15 years ago. And I actually told a moth story about it. I had this kind of emergency abdominal surgery that came out of nowhere. And it was like very serious and 50-50 chance of living and dying. And when I was in the hospital, it never occurred to me to say, that surgeon, he seems like he's a know-it-all. I don't want him in the room. No, actually, I want a superhero in the room. I want the smartest guy. This seems so obvious. When you go to a doctor's office, don't you check out the diplomas on the wall? Into that, I'm not offended. I don't recoil with horror if they went to Stanford. I think that actually might be a good thing. Why is being smart looked at as a problem by certain segments of the population? It does certainly goes back to that whole thing about the Puritans, which I described, which is that the problem with smart people is that they're very easily upstaged by entertaining people. As an entertainer, you can, I hope you don't take offense at this, but as an entertainer, you have great power. You have to give a public speech. You're going to be better at that than somebody who's not a trained actor and performer and writer. You have all these gifts and talents. So in the 60s, for the first time ever, we had televised debates. 1960, we had a debate between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And people who listened to that debate on the radio thought Nixon won because Nixon's really smart and Nixon said a lot of really good things. But people who watched on TV thought that Kennedy won because Kennedy was better looking and he was a much better performer. And so what this taught both parties is that being good on TV was going to be super important in politics. And what the Republicans in California did was they kind of reverse engineered things. They said, well, instead of finding a politician like JFK, who's good on TV, let's just find some clown who's really good on TV and then feed a lot of facts into him so he seems like he's knowledgeable. And that was Ronald Reagan. And you can trace a line from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump, because Donald Trump, for all of his failings, and they are many, is a really good TV performer. Super good. I mean, his show was on for twice as long as Ronald Reagan's TV show is on. Even if you find him absolutely horrifying, he is extremely watchable and compelling on TV. And liberals hate it when I say this, but he's terrible at pretty much everything. But that one superpower of his, the person who's really good at being loud and attention-getting, and the loud and attention-getting person often wins. Now, the Democrats have every now and then stumbled on somebody who's good at both. And a great example of that to me is Barack Obama, because Barack Obama was a fantastic speaker and great on TV and super smart and well-educated and knowledgeable. So to me, it's like finding that kind of Goldilocks combination is where any political party needs to be in this media age, because we can't unring the bell. We're in a world of like TV, Twitter, social media, and the internet. You're going to have to have somebody who can master these media, but wouldn't it be better to have somebody who can do it, but also is really smart and is going to do the right thing? For sure. And I think that makes a lot of sense of how we got from Gerald Ford to Donald Trump. And Trump did some pretty remarkably stupid things. I mean, he looked directly into a solar eclipse. 
I learned not to do that when I was two years old. He asked about bringing light into the body to cure COVID. Do you believe that there should be an intellectual standard for certain elected offices? U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker is lying yet again while on his campaign trail. This Saturday, Walker was in Hall County, Georgia, when he decided to share his extensive knowledge about climate change and the Green New Deal. He said that America's good air travels directly to China and then their bad air travels back to America to get cleaned up. So when China gets our good air, their bad air got to move. So it moves over to good air space. And if so, how do we do that? What would that look like? I don't think we could have an SAT, although Trump got somebody else to take his SATs for him. So that wouldn't solve the problem anyway. These guys would all all find a way to game that. To me, what I think it is in some other countries, in like Northern European countries, there isn't this whole opposition to the idea of education and being smart. It's a very American thing, unfortunately. And so I think we've got to like start talk about this a little bit in my book. We tend to nationalize every problem. We talk about how do we get a better president? And it's understandable because you and I in the media, we talk about national things that we're bombarded on the internet by national stuff. But what I am gradually coming around to is that the best in American democracy actually is happening locally. And there are some examples of this. We're all obsessed with January 6th, as we should be. But I keep on bringing up January 5th, because that was actually a really happy story, because that was the day that Stacey Abrams marshaled enough votes in Georgia to elect two Democratic senators, a Jew and an African-American in Georgia. Now, that is miraculous in my view. But that was all done by local activism, organizing, really boring, grinding it out. I'm trying to encourage other people to do and do myself is to maybe turn off Twitter, turn off cable news, and look around us and say, okay, what's going on in my community? What's going on in my town? Is there something I can do to make my little square of the world a little bit better? And in the course of doing that, maybe you're going to be in town meetings and you will meet people from the other side of the divide who you don't agree with, but you're not going to be blaming them on Twitter. You're going to be talking to them one-on-one. And maybe that's how we start gradually elevating ourselves out of this abyss. This is the reason why I drive people to the polls. And I've done so for 20 years is because I'm able to go in and really be reminded of the romanticism and the possibility of a functioning democracy. And to see, like to go into someone's garage or the basement of a church and see the map pinned to the wall with their district and the houses that they've gone to canvas and what they need to work on more and to sit in cars and drive people to the polls and hear why they're voting, why it's important to them. And it is always local. It's always, we got to fix the damn roads. And that's what impacts people's lives. And it gives you a deeper understanding of what's going on in the whole country, too, which is important for what you do. But even if you're not a national speaker and somebody with a voice and a platform, Just for all of us, the cool thing about local stuff is that, you know, on Twitter, it's very anonymous. So Twitter is like the land of cowards. You can flame anybody because you're never going to run into them and you can just say horrible things and then retreat to your little cave. When you're in a town meeting or a school board meeting, if you're really crappy to somebody in that meeting, you might run into them at the gym next week. 
So it really does moderate our behavior. Or at the school picnic. Exactly. At the school picnic. Absolutely. Like it really, it brings out our humanity a little bit more. And also just on some level, we don't want to be horrible people. Some of us do. But I think most people, I really have to believe that most people don't. Most people, we're social animals, as Dan Goodall would tell us. We're social animals. We want to be part of a group. The problem is, we're not really part of a community these days. We're part of tribes. So it would be better if we could put the idea of tribes to the side and say, wait a minute, we're actually like at the end of Survivor when the two tribes join us. Maybe we should be like that. A community, we're trying to make things better. We're going to have disagreements, but we're not going to be crappy to each other. It's a big ask. But here's the other cool thing about democracy, which is that you don't have to have everybody in this country be in favor of education and science and expertise. You just need a majority or sometimes a plurality. So let's not get obsessed with the fact that there are some people will never convert. Let's just convert enough people so that we can run things in a way that's going to be good for all people. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So much sense. I love it so much. I do have to ask you your opinion, and this is maybe the million-dollar question. Are our politicians getting dumber or are we getting dumber? Are American people dumbing down like homogenized sitcoms of the 80s? Are American people just dumbing down along with their politicians? What came first, the chicken or the egg? That is a really tough question. Do you think Joe Biden is a socialist? Yes. How would you define socialism? I define socialism when you bring down your own country, your own race, because he's not black. And what does that mean? Bringing him down to black people? Is that what you're saying? No. He's saying that the white people, he doesn't look at himself in the mirror. I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that, too. I, um, I have this theory, because I went into this book really as a forensic research project. As I said, I really didn't try to write a book that would just reinforce some hacky opinions. I wanted to really say, like, what? was going on. And honestly, I've been talking a lot about Republicans, but I talk about Democrats in the book too, because what Democrats have done, unfortunately, sometimes is looked at the success of Republicans and said, okay, we've got to dumb down our message too. Bill Clinton, I think, was notorious for this. Like, it's getting out the saxophone on our studios. What was that? But if he was a Yale-educated, Oxford-educated, Rhodes Scholar. And the big concern about Bill Clinton when he started running for president in 92 was that he was going to be considered too nerdy. Well, he kind of unfortunately changed that image in a few ways. But he very intentionally started going around doing Elvis imitations, which I have no idea why that was considered a valuable talent for the role of commander-in-chief, but he started imitating Elvis. He started playing saxophone on Arsenio. So, like, Democrats don't get a free pass from me or from the book. And they shouldn't. It's like they had so many opportunities to kind of work against this trend towards ignorance, and they didn't. Obama was a different case. Obama really did try to make his very knowledgeable message accessible, and that required a little bit of dumbing down, but he never said stupid things. Well, yeah. I mean, there's certain dumbing down that's obviously more dangerous than others. Uh, you write about it in the book that to me... <laughs> still seems pretty, not scary, but just fascinating, I guess. But I think that a lot of people might find reassuring, which is that Ronald Reagan required an astrologer's input before making certain decisions. Tell us about the summit with Gorbachev. Uh, I mean, Ronald Reagan to me is like 
the most wildly overrated president of my lifetime, certainly, because he did so much damage to the country. And we didn't have a homeless situation in this country to any degree before Ronald Reagan. Homelessness was always a temporary situation in times of economic calamity. And under Ronald Reagan, it became chronic. As a matter of fact, I have a great quote from an expert. There I go, in love with those experts again. But an expert said that every park bench in every city in America where there's a homeless person sleeping, there should be like a little plaque to Ronald Reagan because that homeless person is there because of Ronald Reagan. And I totally think that the facts backed it up. But Ronald Reagan knew very little. He was definitely bluffing his way through the eight years of being president. But by the time he had his summit with Gorbachev in Geneva, I think it was, his wife, Nancy, had an astrologer in San Francisco named Joan Quigley, who she depended upon for all Ronald Reagan's scheduling, for when he would meet with people. And like the people in the White House are like pulling their hair out because the last thing you want is like you've got a, a schedule to talk about the budget. You've got an appointment. She says, no, Venus is rising or whatever. You just don't want to have to deal with that. So when it came to the Geneva summit, she organized the seating chart and everything according to everybody's astrological signs. And I mean, it's total craziness, but this is how our country was being run for eight years. What role does the media play in all of this? One of the problems that we have, first of all, and I talk about this book that this guy named Neil Postman wrote, a brilliant book in the 80s called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he was really one of the first people to talk about the dangerous role that TV was playing in politics. And he, he talks about a lot of the things I'm summarizing on the podcast. But I think the media, one of the big problems in the media, why Trump has done so well and did so well for so long and continues to, is that the media is always looking for copy. Unfortunately, with the advent of 24-hour news and now Twitter and the internet, there's just an inexhaustible hunger for content. And so the people who rise to the top in that environment are people who have an inexhaustible supply of content. And Donald Trump did that before there was an internet or 24-hour news and there were just the New York tabloids. He dominated the tabloids because he just could not stop talking. He was great at drawing attention to himself. Donald, uh, you have one of the landmark buildings down in the financial district, 40 Wall Street. Uh, did you have any damage or did you know what, what's happened down there? Well, it was an amazing phone call I made. 40 Wall Street actually was the second tallest building in downtown Manhattan. And, and it was actually before the World Trade Center was the tallest. And then when they built the World Trade Center, it became known as the second tallest, and now it's the tallest. And I just spoke to my people, and they said it's the most unbelievable site. So the media plays this part, and the media had so much to do with Trump's election because he would be at a rally saying his usual nonsense and going on at great length, and the cable news stations would just cut to him reflexively because they knew it would be a good show. They knew it would be Hillary Clinton for all of her many gifts, and she would have been one of our most qualified presidents in American history, is not a great TV performer. She's not that entertaining. She is pretty wonky. She's not a natural. And they're all looking for the soundbite, right? Because the soundbite is what goes viral. Soundbite, in a way, like when the Kennedy-Nixon debate started and the whole idea of TV debates, it was supposed to be a chance for us to understand the candidates' positions better and get a better sense of what their thoughts were. But what it's really boiled down to is just, can we extract from this two-hour ridiculous spectacle maybe 14 seconds somebody saying something dumb? So it's like, 
Ronald Reagan saying, there you go again. Trump saying, puppet, you're the puppet. I'd be all for getting rid of debates, honestly. If they're going to be done the way they're done now, where they're just these ludicrous TV spectacles. Like a wrestling match or Sunday night football, where it's like, in the right corner, we have. It's so ridiculous. But why do we want to feel like we could relate to the people that we elect? I mean, we saw that with George Bush. Obviously, John Kerry was a much more qualified candidate. How do we get out of all of this? Well, it's interesting you bring up the relatable thing with Bush, because one of my favorite things that I researched in the book was the whole notion of the beer quiz, which is when they would ask people, they do a poll and they'd say, who would you rather have a beer with? As if that were a really good criterion. I mean, who would want to have a beer with Abraham Lincoln? He was a downer. He would not be on my list. So most of the really great presidents would not have been great to hang with if we're talking about hanging with somebody. But that whole beer quiz thing, people quote that as if it was like this great advance in political polling. And actually, do you know who was behind that poll? It was the makers of Sam Adams beer. It was not even a polling company. The guys in marketing at Sam Adams said, hey, here's a good one. Let's ask people who they'd rather have a beer with, Al Gore or... George W. Bush. Now, George W. Bush was actually a recovering alcoholic with a DWI. So I think he's the last person you want to like drag into a bar. Why would you be contributing to his problem by doing that? But it became kind of this coin of the realm. And so now, like 22 years later, and we're still talking about, is that the kind of guy you want to have a beer with? Our enemies are innovative and resourceful. And so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. Poor Obama, who I don't think is a big beer drinker, in 2008, he was like going through Pennsylvania and he was like embarrassingly trying to bowl and drink beer. That man, we all owe him an apology for that alone. Forget about the whole birth certificate thing. I think making him bowl and drink beer was a much bigger affront to Barack Obama. He was so bad at both of them. And now we're in the middle of a midterm election cycle. And then we're going to, as soon as that's over, we're going to start a presidential election cycle where I could imagine the stupidity seems to be the most important qualification to many people. Are there things that voters should be on the lookout for to warn them of a particularly ignorant or dangerously unintelligent candidate? Oh, gosh, where does one begin? As you said, there should be a volume two to this book because we have all these people out there. I would say if a candidate suggests that in order to cure a human illness or ailment, you take medicine intended for a different mammal, I would say that that's a sign. I would put that on the list. That's a red flag. I think, again, any indication that Jews are operating interstellar machinery. Very bad sign, because that's probably not a very smart person. Also, I think we should be on the lookout. Is it quaint to say that spelling should count? I think maybe we're beyond the point where that's even something we can hope for. But I do think like 
do they know what certain words are like? Do they know that Gestapo is a different word from gazpacho, for example? Can they distinguish between the two? And if they're saying bad things about gazpacho, isn't that going to offend those of us who like to order gazpacho? And finally, Andy, what gives you hope? I think we have to we have to remember these three things. Because again, much like Jane Goodall, I'm presenting a message of hope. So here are the things you have to remember. History does not move in a straight line. There, there were the Dark Ages, but then there was the Renaissance. Two, the best in American democracy happens locally. So let's get out of our like nationalizing impulse and do what you're doing, Alyssa Milano. Drive those people to the polls. Even give people perhaps a bottle of water, even though I guess that's against the law now in Georgia. And the third is we don't have to convince everybody. We just have to convince a majority, in some cases, just a plurality. So one problem is you're on Twitter a lot, which I am not. I'm on very sparingly. But you get assaulted by really loud voices saying really dumb things. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert is courting more controversy. The Colorado Republican tweeted this picture last night showing her four boys holding semi-automatic guns. Uh, You'll remember that one of her Republican colleagues, Thomas Massey, made headlines last week with a similar holiday photo of his family. Now, House Democrats were already calling for Boebert to be disciplined for her repeated Islamophobic comments about Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. And that can make you feel like everybody in the country is dumb and everybody in the country is really loud and dumb. And that's actually not the case. It's like a lot of people are. But throughout American history, there's usually been about half the country saying really stupid things. That doesn't mean we have a really stupid country and the American people are dumb and all that. It just means that it's a problem. We have some conflict between people who are believers in education and knowledge and expertise and people who hate all that stuff. You just have to convert a few people in the middle. You don't have to convert everybody who hates expertise because that's an ask that none of us can accomplish. So in a way that reduces, it lowers the bar a little bit for the task ahead. It's like in the midterm, let's not worry about winning every race. We're not gonna, let's worry about the winnable races. Let's not just click on every internet ad and give money to everybody who's running everywhere. Let's find out what are the most winnable races and focus on those. Here's the other reason I have to have some hope. And this is tangible, which is that you were talking about what people all across the country care about and what's important to them. And we've learned very recently in two elections in Kansas and more recently in upstate New York in Dutchess and Columbia County, we've learned that actually women believe that the right to choice and bodily autonomy is a really important thing. And a lot of men also actually believe that. And the Kansas results were an absolute stunner. Coincidentally, I was entertaining some guests from Kansas like the week before, and the wife in this couple was saying she was really keeping her eyes on this election in Kansas and was really like pulling for the pro-choice side to win. And I, being kind of out of the loop, was saying, well, I was sort of saying, oh, well, I'm pulling for you too. But I was like saying, oh, what a sad person. She actually thinks they've got a chance. And then That was a totally shocking result, but it shows so that ignorance is actually trickle down. Remember all that trickle down economics that Reagan said was going to work? Trickle down economics doesn't work, but trickle down ignorance does work. When our politicians say stupid things, it makes us dumber. 
So I guess a good way to counter that is if we at the bottom, in other words, the people who are voting, resist that ignorance and we actually do the smart thing. And the smart thing in this case is women understand they want to have rights. They don't want to be told by the Supreme Court that they don't deserve the right to choose. And so they came out en masse. And I do think with the um, the midterms coming along, Democrats were so incredibly dispirited and pessimistic about the midterms. I don't feel that way now. I feel that by taking away an established right that had been on the books for 50 years, the Supreme Court really overstepped. And I know this is like maybe a glib comparison, but I think of like the Prohibition era. That was another case where some real extremists got what they wanted. The temperance movement worked for decades to try to ban alcohol in the United States. And then they finally got their big win with the amendment that created prohibition. And you know what? It's like a case of like dog catches car, you know, is they got what they wanted and then all hell broke loose. It was like just rampant violation of the law, bootlegging, organized crime, gangland murders. And the American people aren't stupid. Ultimately, they realized, oh, wait, that was a really terrible idea. It really hurt the country. And I do foresee overturning of Roe v. Wade having the same end result. I'm not saying that a lot of people aren't going to die as a result of this decision because they will. And it's going to be horrible. But I do think at the end of the day, I think women's right to choose is going to be reaffirmed in a powerful, lasting way. That's why we're calling it Rovember. <laughs> Love it. It's good, right? Way better than anything that the Democrats have come up with <laughs> in the party. But I'm going to hashtag it. Everybody use the hashtag Rovember to get out the vote. Well, thank you, Andy. You give me hope. Thanks for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Here are just some of the crazy things that Marjorie Taylor Greene, congressperson, believes. So that is a gigantic wall of text, but I will sum it up for you. The Camp Fire in California, the worst wildfire in California to that point, she believes was not caused by electrical equipment from PG&E. She believes that space lasers owned by the Rothschilds were beaming energy back to America and a blue blue beam of light shot California and burned down the forest. And perhaps it ends there, or perhaps it was done on purpose so that Governor Brown could get his high speed rail. All of that is in that thing. Hi, this is Ben Jackson. I'm the producer of Sorry Not Sorry. This is usually the point where Alyssa comes on and wraps up the show and reflects for you all on some of the issues that we've talked about. But I'm breaking in today to ask for your help. See, one of the many things that Andy Borowitz does is serve as the primary host of The Moth, which is a brilliant storytelling series. The stories that are shared on that show are powerful. They're sometimes funny, sometimes incredibly sad, and the best of them provide insight into the world as we experience. That insight is such a critical tool to help us see the world through someone else's eyes. And that's the beginning of empathy. Each of you listening has a story, and we'd like you to share it. If you visit us on anchor.fm, that's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M, and search for Alyssa Milano, Sorry Not Sorry, you'll see the ability to leave us a voice message. If you would, tell us what's at stake for you in the upcoming midterm elections. What's your story, and how will the outcome of the elections change outcomes for you? It's through my story that I met Alyssa. Your stories could change someone's life just as dramatically as that encounter changed mine. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs>